Thank you, Daniel. Well, welcome everyone. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. So great to have each one of y'all here joining us for worship here today. If you would like, we're going to read from the book of John chapter 6. If you want to grab one of the Bibles in the pew, you can turn to page 891. Um, some of y'all have heard me say this before, but I'll just to remind you if, you, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you are welcome to take the Bible that you're opening in your lap home with you um, from our pews. It's, it'd be a privilege and honor to get to give you um, the Word of God as you leave our church today. Uh, so maybe that could be a blessing to you. I hope it can be. To give you a little bit of context of where we're picking up, this is the third week that we're looking at um, chapter 6 in the book of John. This is the day after one of Jesus' most favorite or famous miracles, the miracle that um, every single gospel author records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record Jesus feeding 5,000 men and then all the women and children who are gathered fish and bread miraculously. The next day, all of those people go looking for Jesus and they find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and we'll pick up in verse 25, reading through 35, and then 41 through 59. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that now you would bless um, the preaching and the hearing of your word. Uh, We come to you um, as people who need to hear it, who need to be reminded of it. And we ask that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of y'all know Joe Deegan. Oftentimes he is up here playing guitar and uh, helping, us, helping lead us in worship. Joe told me a story a few years ago. Uh, it was kind of terrifying, and I want to share it with you. Uh, actually, he's at, um, he's at a place right now called Youth Leader Training for the ministry that he works full-time with called Reformed Youth Ministries. And every year, uh, this time of year, Joe goes to a camp in Nashville and hundreds of youth leaders, including our youth leaders here at this church, uh, go to Nashville and they receive a week of training so that they can better serve their local churches. Now, Joe, a few years ago, shows up at this camp and he's carrying a bunch of bags of ice cream into the kitchen because they're going to have an ice cream Sunday party one of the nights. And <clears throat> he's been, he, he hasn't been to this campsite before where they're, they're doing this at this time. Everything's a bit unfamiliar. He walks into uh, the kitchen and all the lights are out in this kitchen. There's no windows in the space. And he's calling out, hello, anyone here? Anyone here to help? I've got a bunch of stuff. I need some help. Hello. And he finds, he kind of feels around, finds the lights, which flips on the lights. And there's a man standing in the room who was just standing there in the dark. And he's looking at Joe. Joe's holding these bags of ice cream. He's like, oh, hey, um, do you work here? And the guy just says, I can help you. Okay, I just need to put this ice cream somewhere. Where do I go? And the guy doesn't say anything. He just turns and begins walking to where this big, you know, massive freezer is in, um, in this kitchen area. So the guy opens the door. And Joe walks in. He's like, hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. He puts the ice cream, turns around and sees the door closing. And the door slams close, and Joe kind of laughs to himself. That's funny. And then he goes to try to open the door, and it doesn't open. And he pulls a little harder, and he pulls a little harder. And now he's starting to get a little bit worried, so he pulls out his phone, and then he realizes he's in a metal box. And there's no phone service. And he's wearing flip-flops, and it's like, it feels about like it does in here right now, in this freezer, Uh, like, except a little colder, it's like negative 40. And he starts doing the math in his head. He's like, I don't have a lot of time. And he can't open this door. And he begins pulling harder and harder. And then he he does what I think all of us would do. He begins beating on the door and screaming for help. And about a minute later, in that little window, the man's face appears. And Joe said, hey, you left me in here. I, I can't get out, will you help me? And the guy says, did you try pushing the door? And Joe pushes the door and walks out. <clears throat> now, I, I tell you that story 
because the people, the people here who are seeking out Jesus have this very felt need about what they think they need Jesus to do for them. In a lot of ways, this, just like Joe thought he needed somebody to help him pull on that door. You push, I'll pull, we'll get this thing open. That would have been the worst thing that man could have done for Joe. It would have killed him. And the people in this story are coming to Jesus with an agenda. They're coming to Jesus with an agenda of what they think that he needs to do for them. And if Jesus were to only do and give them what they think they need, it would be their doom. So what I want you to see first is the bread that they want and second, the bread Jesus gives. And then our final point will be so what? The bread they want, the bread Jesus gives, and then so what? Well, these folks show up and they want bread to eat. They have heard about, or many of them have been, at Jesus' great miracle that he had done just yesterday. And at the beginning of John chapter 6, John makes, uh, makes it clear to tell us that this is during the time of the Passover. So there's people from all over who've gathered to this area of the country for this celebration. And Passover for the Jewish people would not be exactly like, but in many ways would be like the way that we celebrate 4th of July here. It would be kind of the high watermark time of national pride for the Jewish people. It would be the time when they would remember how long ago God freed them from the global superpower, how they got their independence. Sound familiar, right? It would be like their 4th of July. And so that's kind of in the air while Jesus is doing this miracle. And yet, while that is lingering in the air, this national pride, they are once again under the thumb of the global superpower, Rome. That's the context that these people are in. And do you remember what they did after Jesus, after Jesus performs this sign of turning all this bread and fish into more and more and more and feeding them? What did they do? They all wanted to make him king. They had this plan because you know, independence is in the air. They had this plan of like, this is what we need this man to do for us. Look at, what he can, look at what he can do. This is the kind of king that we need. And you know what? It's not a small amount of people who are doing this. You have 5,000 men, that's a militia. There is a real political edge to this story about what these folks what want Jesus to do for their politics. And Jesus... Instead of giving them what they want, resists it. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves in verse 26. And then later in verse 27, he warns them, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is, con in, is concerned out of love that they are asking for the wrong thing. They think that they know what they need. They don't want to be led somewhere. They want to lead Jesus to their own agenda. And y'all, we, we do this today. 
we come to Jesus in many ways like they do, like consumers. Give us more bread, give us more signs, be our king. And they come to Jesus asking, what, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? And they begin asking for, they have some consumer demands. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, verse 30. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And, and right there when they say, as it is written, they're quoting from Nehemiah 9, verse 15. But you see, Jesus knows what, what's said in Nehemiah 9, verse 16. The next verse of Nehemiah that they're quoting to him is this. But they... And our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey. God God did give them what they wanted back in the time of the Exodus. He did give them what they wanted and yet they acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck against him. And we, we do the same thing. We come to the church as consumers rather than as sheep, which... I hate to break it to you, that's how Jesus describes us most of the time, sheep. I know it's not like a flashy animal, but that that is the metaphor he uses most frequently to describe his people. And a sheep is kind of the opposite of a consumer. In fact, sheep kind of get consumed a lot. Sheep are ones who have to be led and told where to eat. But a consumer, a consumer is one who wants to lead Jesus to where they think they need to go. A consumer treats the church or Jesus like Burger King. Do you remember the old, those old Burger King commercials? Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. Special orders, don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us have it your way. Have it your way. That is so... That is so inculcated into the way that we view our world, is it not? That the world would just be best if I could have it my way. And if you don't think that's you, I want you to consider this. Have you you ever gone to like a religious gathering or a church or Bible study and maybe the message was boring? Not like today, but like another time. (laughs) But the, the, the message was boring and the, the music was not your taste. And as you left, you thought, I don't think I'm gonna go back. I didn't really get anything out of that. That is a consumer mentality. That, that I should or should not go back or be part of that, whether or not I get something out of it. And for many of us, uh, our hearts take us toward the same place these people are, which is to to come to Jesus and to have some sort of spoken or unspoken agenda as we deal with him, what we really need out of him. It's one of the things I want want us to be aware about as we begin community groups here at our church. It, It is just like me and just like us to show up at a place like a community group and think, what am I gonna get out of this? What am I, is this community gonna be the kind of group that I really need? Is this, is this group gonna fill me up and meet my needs? In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, 
the person who loves their dream of community will destroy that community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. So we can come to something like a community group or something like a church with our ideal of what this should look like. And when it inevitably fails and doesn't look like that, we actually can become the very ones who destroy that community with our grumbling and complaining and discontent because we are not having it our way. What is it that we are coming to the Lord and trying to direct him to give us? What signs are we demanding from him? Perhaps for you it's a spouse or well-behaved kids or some relief from your chronic pain or a better job. And if you're not sure what it is, just ask yourself, what do you grumble about? Because that's what the people do here in the book of John. It's what the people do in the book of Exodus They begin to grumble. You see that in verse 41 and verse 43. It points out that they grumble when they don't get what they want. And we do the same thing. We grumble when we don't, when we think we know what's best and we don't get it. And the people here are asking for Jesus to do this sign of bringing bread from heaven. They're asking for another manna kind of sign. Manna is a reference to the book of Exodus when God sent bread from heaven to feed his people when they were in the wilderness. But you know his response, the reason he did that is because they were grumbling. In the book of Exodus, we hear, just like this is set during the time of Passover, in the book of Exodus, we hear the original Passover story. When God, when God sent the angel of death to Egypt as the 10th plague, and God had the people of Israel sacrifice a lamb and cover the doorposts with the blood of the lamb so that the angel of death would pass over them, pass over. So that the angel of death would pass over them and they would be saved. And it's then when Pharaoh commands God's people to leave and they go, but then Pharaoh goes after them and God destroys their enemy in the Red Sea and the people are freed from 400 years of slavery. And they're rejoicing because at the Passover, God had saved them. And now they're in the wilderness on their way to the promised land and God shows up time and time again to them at night as a pillar of fire to keep them warm. Because it's it's hard in the wilderness and it gets cold in the desert. And in the daytime, he shows up as a pillar of cloud to give them shade. And you would think if there was ever a time that people wouldn't struggle with doubt and complaining, it would be that time. But don't you love how honest the Bible is about humanity? About what God's people are like and what we're like? Because what we hear is after God has done all of that, after he's rescued them, they've sung a big song about it. Everyone's so happy. God is showing up. He's taking care of them. They get into the wilderness for a few days. And that's when the people begin to say things like, he brought us out here to die. Exodus 16.3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Remember how great it was in Egypt? That's what they start talking about. And it's then that God gives them bread from heaven, manna, which literally means, what is it? They see it on the ground like, what is it? They say, manna, 
They don't, even know what it, they don't even know what it is. God gives them bread from heaven. He feeds them. But Jesus is pointing out, listen, God gave you what you, he gave your fathers what they wanted. What happened to them? Verse 49, he says it multiple times. Verse 49, they died. The ultimate solution to their problem was not just that they needed bread. And so Jesus, rather than obeying their pleas to give them what they want, you know, to push, <laughs> to push the freezer door more closed, Jesus instead is going to give them what they need. That's my second point. The bread Jesus gives. Jesus is going to give himself. And it's a promise that's been whispered all throughout the Old Testament. This beautiful promise all throughout the Old Testament that God is going to give people what they ultimately need so that they might be saved from their sin. All the way back even in Deuteronomy 8.3, when it, once again, Moses is talking about manna. He says, he writes this to the people of Israel, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is telling the people of Israel, listen, I know that we, we were fed bread from heaven, but what we ultimately depend on is not food to fill our bellies, but the word of God. We live on the word of God. And I want you to think about how that thread is traced from the very beginning of the Bible when it's the word of God that is actually creating everything. God speaks and he makes all things. And John picks up that thread and he weaves it through his book that he's writing to us. And he tells us in John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then in John 1, 14, he tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, God's answer to our, our desperation, to our aimless seeking to our flailing about and thinking that we know what we need to our sinful rebellion against him, to our grumbling against him. God's answer is to actually become a person, to put on human flesh for the word that we live by to become flesh in the person and son of God, Jesus Christ. Because God knows what we need. He is the expert. He knows what we need and it's him, only him. And friends, Jesus knows this is a life and death situation. Do you hear how many times he talked about dying here? Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. But Jesus 
Jesus offers something so much better. Verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Y'all, Jesus' language here is colorful to say the least, right? When he begins describing what we have to do in order to have eternal life in him, verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Reminds me of one time um, we were about to celebrate communion in my church in Alabama, and one of the kids actually started listening to what was being said and goes, we're gonna drink blood? Jesus, Jesus is being very colorful with his language here because he wants to drive it into their head. That, that Greek word um, that he uses for feeds in verse 54, trogon, it means to chomp down or to gobble up or to feast. It's almost like an animalistic kind of word that he's using. It's a colorful language, but the disciples don't grab, go grab their forks after he says this. He's not speaking completely literally here, although he is hinting at something we're going to talk about in a second. But he's describing just how exclusive our need for Jesus is that only he can give. I don't know if you saw in the news three days ago, a man named Elvis Francois was rescued from the Caribbean Sea. He had been fixing his sailboat on an island near the shore when a storm swept him out to sea and he floated on his broken half-capsized sailboat for 24 days. And all he had to eat was a bottle of ketchup and some garlic seasoning packets. How precious do you think that that meal was for him? as he drifted at sea and wrote help on the side of his sailboat, which someone eventually saw as they flew over him. How desperate was he for that meal? Even though it was a strange one, maybe not the one he would have picked, but he was desperate before it because it was actually all that he had and all that could give him a life. And that's what Jesus is telling us that he is all that can give us ultimate and eternal life. The church has all kinds of gifts to offer people. Gifts of community, encouragement, financial assistance, activities. We're about to celebrate another gift that God has given this church, which is women who are gonna be serving as elder advisors and deacon assistants here among us. God's given us all kinds of resources, but all of these resources are meant as a sign pointing to what each of us ultimately need, which is the bread of life, Jesus. And I want to be honest, my fear is that people would come to this church, this church with its resources, with its gifts, and that we would come here as consumers and that we would miss out on the bread of life. There's, there's even, there's a pattern that I've noticed. I noticed this in some of my students' lives when I was a campus pastor at the University of Texas. And maybe it would go something like this. You grow up in church, 
And then maybe kind of around middle school or especially high school or especially college, being a Christian and following Jesus just gets really hard. And there's not a lot of consumer benefits to it. And so you know what you do? You stop. You just stop. Because if the whole point of going to church was the good stuff that you could get out of it, why, why go when it's hard? And, and I see the, those, those same people like graduate college and, and they maybe don't, don't find a church anywhere because you know what, it's also it's hard and sometimes awkward to follow Jesus when you're a young adult. But then maybe you, you get married and you have kids. You know what you want for your kids? You want them to have some kind of like spiritual life. You want them to have some kind of um, association with the church so you come back. But the reason that you're coming back is because the church is a consumer product for you. And I, I promise I'm not trying to narrate any one person's life in this room right now. If, if, I feel, if you feel like I just narrated your life, I'm, I don't mean to say that in judgment of you, but I do want you to, to consider why are you here? Are, are you here because of what you're getting out of this place or are you here because you need the bread that only Jesus offers? The bread that only he can give because everything else that we would feed on, every other gift that we would focus on, you can have it, and then you die. But Jesus, but Jesus out of his marvelous love and grace for sinners like us has given his very body because he intends to save sinners like us. Are you desperate for that? Do you need that? He's given it to us. You know what this means for kids? Kids, what, what this means is that um, I want you to hear me say that sometimes following Jesus is going to be really hard in your life. And um, our world will tell you that when it gets hard, you should just stop because there's better things out there. What we want to do as a church is walk alongside you during the time that it's hard and prepare you to go out into the world that is going to maybe be increasingly hard to be a Christian. But what we want you to know is that Jesus is worth it, y'all. Jesus is worth it because he only has the words of eternal life, which is what Peter is going to say in a few verses. We want you to know that. So what? Uh, I'll close with this story. Last point. Um, in Seattle in 2001, uh, you may remember there were some riots that broke out during Mar a Mardi Gras celebration downtown, and a young woman uh, was swept up into this mob that had formed, and she fell down. And a 20-year-old college student named Chris Keim she basically used his body as a shield to protect her as this mob kind of raged in downtown Seattle. Chris was tragically struck and fatally wounded and died uh, later at the hospital that night. His family was deeply grieved, but 
they, there was a silver lining in his story because Chris was an organ donor and his death saved the lives of five people who needed organs from Chris's body that were given to them. His mother, in her grief, but also in her gratitude for her son's life, threw a party for the recipients of her son's organs. And during that party, the, the, uh, Chris's sister walked around and began introducing everybody to one another. And, and instead of using their names, she would say, pancreas, <laughs> lungs, heart. And Chris's mother put her ear to the man who had Chris's heart in his chest and listened to her son's heart beating. And all these people gathered together because they had been saved by one man's life. Now, I want you to think about this. When they sat down to have dinner that night and they began talking about their lives and maybe they began talking about the differences that they had from one another, do you think that they would focus on those petty differences? Do you think that they would focus on one view that he had and one view that she had that was maybe different? Where maybe lungs and pancreas and heart didn't have things in common, or do you think that they would rejoice that they had been united by one man's sacrificial life and death? Church of Christ the King, what we do when we celebrate this meal, we have, the Lord's Supper is also known in the church as communion. We have communion with God and with one another because we have been united by Christ. So we get the privilege of loving one another because of what he's done for us. So let's do that for his glory and for the good of our neighbor. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for all that you have done through the work of your son Jesus and for his very life that you, that you gave for us that we might have life in him. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.